friends, and welcome to The Well. I'm Dylan Bowman, and as always, I am super grateful to have you here for another great conversation with a very inspirational athlete. Today, we're talking to Abby Hall from Boulder, Colorado. And this past summer, Abby tackled the 220-mile John Muir Trail in California in unsupported fashion. And in the year of the FKT, I think Abby's JMT speed record attempt was maybe the one I found the most inspiring. And it was inspiring not only because of Abby's proud solo style on the trail, but also how she told the story of the the history of the trail and paid her respects to that heritage, both in her record attempt and on social media. So of course we talk about all that here in this episode, along with Abby's background, her previous failed attempt on the route, why she chose to go in an unsupported fashion this time, the details of her approach as it relates to pacing and gear and sleep on such a long push, her dramatic finish amid the smoke of a terrible nearby wildfire and much, much more. Also in this conversation, we reference a video that Abby's made sponsor Adidas Terex made about her attempt. If you haven't seen it, I link to it in the show notes and I would definitely recommend that you check it out. Finally, I just wanted to say that as we received the terrible news of the passing of Andrea Husser, the Swiss ultra running legend this week, Um, It's just a real privilege for me to be able to share the stories of badass women like Abby, who set the standard in our sport and who tackle these just huge, inspiring objectives, showing us all what's possible. So thanks so much to Andrea and thanks so much to Abby. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Please welcome Abby Hall. Okay, Abby Hall, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks. I'm uh, doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's a it's a lovely Wednesday here in, in Portland, and uh, I'm uh, recording a lot of fun episodes this week. And this is one that I've wanted to do for a few months now. I mean, ever since you finished your awesome JMT, and we had a a little Instagram exchange trying to set this up. Um, so it's it's great to see you, and it's a it's an honor to have you on the program. But um, I figure we start obviously, as I just mentioned, uh, you did the Jamir Trail this summer, and I want to focus most of our conversation around that. But uh, let's start with some background. Tell us about who you are, where you're from, uh, what your interests are, both inside and outside of running, and help us get to know Abby Hall a little bit better. Yeah, you bet. Um, So I'm originally from the Chicago area is where I grew up. Um, Went to uh, Wheaton College, ran through high school and college and was a middle distance runner. Um, Actually really ran like my first trail race when I was like in fifth grade. So I've really been running for a long Mm -hmm. time and uh, something I did with my family growing up. And uh, yeah, it's always been a a big part of me. Um, but yeah, after college, I moved out to California. Um, I'm a graphic designer for work by day. And so my creative field took me out there. Um, and that was really kind of where I first encountered trail running and ultra running. Um, I guess, even though I'd done trail running, you know, previously, uh, like more the the niche sport of ultra running. Uh, you first hear the stories or you read a book, or you hear a podcast and you're like, wait, like there's this whole group of people who are doing this and they all like are doing these wild things. And uh, 
I was at a point in life where I was really kind of uh, looking for my tribe a little bit. Um, mm. And uh, it's actually funny just, you know, how the John Muir Trail actually is kind of a part of my intro to the sport in a lot of ways, um, because it's when I was living in California that I discovered it and set a goal that I wanted to go for the FKT on it before I had done any ultras. <laughs> Hadn't even done like my neighborhood really? 50K yet. Wow, <laughs> yeah. cool. Um, and so it's actually really unique in this conversation because that was partially uh, what brought me out to Boulder. I was like, mm -hmm. I need to move to a place where I can train and be around um, other people who want to do this and learn about the sport. Um, and yeah, it was, that was a really kind of how I landed in Boulder in 2016, where I um, met my now husband, Cordis, and uh, we live here in Boulder and yeah, outside of work, I'm, uh, I guess work as a, <laughs> I'm a graphic designer and then also a trail runner for Adidas Terex, um, yeah. as is Cordis. And, uh, and we both uh, love to do like a lot of home improvement stuff too. Uh, <laughs> so we keep busy with that. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. So uh, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your professional life as a, as a graphic designer. Um, mm -hmm. You've always been kind of a, an artsy person. Mm -hmm. And what's your focus professionally? Do you work in an agency? Or are you a freelancer? What's, uh, what's your focus? Yeah, I'm actually, um, I work for a digital product agency called Township. Um, so it's a small group of us, uh, all remote. And I started working uh, for them uh, actually like around the start of this year. So um, it's been a really good fit and uh, nice to work with like a great remote team amidst all things COVID. And uh, yeah, my focus is primarily on uh, like UI design, but also kind of branding and identity work. Um, so a little bit of everything. And then Outside of like that, I'll even work on things for fun. Like I actually just did um, some little animations for the a video that they put together for Sabrina's Nolans or, you know, like yeah. I'll pick up different kind of, or I'm actually working on like Coop's book right now doing oh, all the cool. design for that. So oh. like, yeah, definitely do some like fun. Uh, it like leads me to fun uh, projects on the side still. Oh, that's awesome. Well, shout out to Jason Coop. We'll definitely uh, plug his uh, his new book, which I think is coming out early next year, uh, who's both of our coaches, I guess I should uh, specify. Yeah. I, I guess uh, this is just another personal curiosity of mine. Do you see like, are you guys busy with work right now? Because to me, it feels mm -hmm. like there's a lot of people who are working on like new business ideas, new brands, you know, because of COVID and how the economy is is changing and people have all these new creative ideas is are you guys are you guys busy are you experiencing that or is that just my imagination I would definitely say that's accurate I mean um we're like totally committed for the year work-wise so wow. it's a good problem to have well that's great yeah. so who were some of your sporting heroes as a kid I know you were a, a runner from a young age um was this uh, you said it sort of was something that you shared with your with your family was it always something that you wanted to pursue kind of on a on a professional level did were you always driven by competition and if so who who are the people you looked up to as a little girl mm, that's a great question um i was a uh, uh, also a big basketball player as a kid um and i had a lot of like dreams at a very young age about that i think related to being a female athlete like i distinctly remember like shooting hoops on uh, my childhood house driveway growing up. And I remember thinking one day I'm going to march into the offices of the NBA and I'm going to tell them the WNBA and the NBA need to be merged. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> just these distinct memories of like, you know, that being a driving force or, you know, wanting to like, you know, beat the boys or play with the boys like on the playground and basketball or like memories of like, oh, I beat the boys in the mile in gym class. And um, so I think like a lot of my uh, sporting heroes early on were uh, definitely like women that were pushing the bounds of the sport. Um, and that was always something I really aspired to be. Um, I definitely didn't. I think as a young child, I had big dreams of like pursuing professional athletics, but um, it's not all what I would have expected my path to mm -hmm. unfold as, especially like in high school or college. Like I was a, you know, I ran D3 in college, but was like a pretty mediocre runner on the team, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, and I did not, did not ex expect to find uh, the kind of success I've been able to find with ultra running. Um, and that's been like, just a, just a continual lesson of like how life can surprise us. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. It's uh, the whole basketball thing is interesting. I didn't know that about you and uh, both Devin Yanko and, and Keely Henninger, I know are big basketball players as well. So the three, you, right. three of you guys should, uh, <laughs> should form like a little pickup team. I'm sure you could take on basically all the, <laughs> all the, uh, the, the male ultra runners. I'm sure you guys wouldn't have a problem um, em embarrassing <laughs> us off the court. <laughs> So let's, uh, let's kind of move to, uh, to the JMT. Uh, you've already mentioned that this was a long time goal of yours. And yeah. I know just in sort of following your story, um, on your attempt this year, that it wasn't your first attempt that you had made an attempt in 2016 as well. What's mm -hmm. the, the story with the 2016 attempt? Uh, what did you learn there and how did that experience kind of shape the, the 2020 attempt? Yeah. So, uh, Basically, this was like the year that I'd moved to Boulder and I was, uh, I, I remember I went to a coffee shop. I was like, I need to sign up for some races. So I'll do a 50K in June, 50 miler in July, JMT attempt in August. <laughs> like any prudent uh, race selection or yeah. goal plan goes. Uh, yeah. And uh, really went into that in hindsight, like just couldn't have been more unprepared. I remember... <laughs> like packing my bag for the first time that morning and having a sandwich that I had prepped and realizing my sandwich shouldn't fit in my bag. So I just was going to leave it, and, you know, just like ditching calories the last minute on my way out the door. Um, it was really uh, a fly by the seat of my pants kind of thing. Um, and again, like I went for it supported that year. So um, there was, uh, I think, the main thing that was missing was just like not knowing really how to manage support. Um, that's something that I've learned that it, it took me a while to learn that I didn't know that. And that mm. like, you know, in a race, like when you come into an aid station, there's like a way you can carry yourself or communicate to your crew that sets them and you up for success. And uh, I think the same goes for an objective. And I really didn't know what that should look like at the time. So mm -hmm. um like, I think, uh, I, I like bought Cordis a plane ticket. This was shortly after he and I had started dating. And <laughs> I think his crew and pacing mileage was going to be like 150. Like it was like absurd because he was going to have to like be hiking into all these places and then pacing me a section, just like destined yeah. for, it was just a mess from the start. Right. Um, and so I actually, I mean, I, I bailed pretty early on. I was mm. like, I made it about 40 miles. Oh, um, okay. And, uh, you know, really 
that was really still sad for me at the time though. Like it was kind of this early moment of realizing like, wow, I've got a lot of, a lot of work to do if I want to, mm-hmm. if I want to do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at the time I really felt like ultras and, and outings like that. It was like this, this club I wanted to be a part of, like, mm-hmm. I just wanted to be in it. I wanted to be able to do things like that. And I wanted to have war stories from things like that. And, uh, it really stuck with me for a while. And so kind of fast forward to this summer, um, I uh, was, I had just finished, a, um, actually not finished, <laughs> an objective uh, that Cordis and I did together in July called the Fifner Traverse. We had mm-hmm. to, we got, we had to pull the plug in the last five miles because of a big storm that rolled in. Yeah. And so it left me with this like very kind of haunted feeling of like, you know, dying to like get in a good finish on an objective for the summer. And yeah. I was talking with Coop and um, Coop was actually who kind of brought up, well, like, why not head back to the JMT? Really? And, uh, yeah. Of course, of course. You I, know. It's like, <laughs> I know. You know, it's not like, you know, go run a, you know, some <laughs> mellow 50 mile route. It's like, no, that's yeah. one of the most hardcore things ever because that's Jason <laughs> Coop style. Yeah. Well, I guess I should preface that too with, uh, you know, this is like a week or so after fifth. And I was like, I want to do something bigger longer and unsupported so that was the kind of preface that led to him saying well why not uh give the jmt another shot and um of course right away i'm like well like what about like the permits and all this and he was kind of like well you'll figure it out like (laughs) uh and yeah (laughs) it's so uh funny you know like these learning experiences that we have in our careers and having that disappointment on your first attempt in 2016 it reminds me of the first time that I went to UTMB in in 2013 Mm. and I I hurt my ankle I had a really bad ankle sprain uh the first day that I arrived and I wasn't able to even start start the race but because I was there I rode around with uh with Anton Krupichka's crew with uh with Joe Grant and Anna Frost and uh but it was hilarious because at the time I had a similar realization of just like, oh, wow, well, thank goodness I was hurt because I was totally unprepared for this race. And, you know, next time I do this, uh, this will be a good sort of learning experience and uh, beta gathering uh, trip. So, um, you know, it obviously clearly set you up for success this year. I'm curious though, like what about the JMT is like so compelling to you from back when you were living in California? Is it Mm. the route itself, the geography, the distance, the terrain, any combination Mm. of those things? What do you think it is that motivates you so much about it? I think one of the things from, uh, the get-go for me was just how much history is on the route, um, especially in the realm of kind of FKTs. Um, from what I know about it, I think it may have even been one of the routes that kind of compelled uh, Buzz and Peter to kind of start the FKT website was mm-hmm. some of their early attempts and wondering who else has gone for this and what are their times and, you know, are they they're the fastest that we know of, uh, fastest known times. So, um, I think definitely just a long lineage of history on it was, uh, I think is something that still just really gets me amped about it. Um, yeah. and I think that that's something, I think that goes back to even my early feelings of like really wanting to be in this community of ultra running, mm-hmm. um, uh, 
that idea of like sharing stories on a line and sharing experiences out there, especially, you know, even if you're out there by yourself, thinking of those who came before you and have stood right where you were is something that's really special to me. Um, awesome. Of course, that history is, you know, getting richer and richer on lines all around the world, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> especially this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Well, I mean, just personally, um, you know, there, this was the, obviously the year of the of the FKT, given the circumstances with the coronavirus. And I have to say, your your uh, John Muir Trail record attempt was, I think, maybe the most inspiring for me, and made me really mm. want to go try that trail and that style. And I've done pieces of the trail many times over the course of the last decade, but never in a, a single push. And that unsupported mm. style is so beautiful. And mm. as you talk about the history, it makes me want to go into another subject um, that you sort of opened my eyes to in following your journey this summer. And that is Numu Poyo, Numu Poyo. Mm -hmm. So yeah. can you explain what that is, uh, what the significance of it is, and uh, yeah, what, what the meaning is behind it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Numu Poyo, for those who aren't familiar with that name of the John Muir Trail, is a, kind of is a um, Paiute, northern Paiute name um, that's referring to this centuries-old trade trade route that runs uh, north, south, and Sierra that we all know now as the John Muir Trail. Um, and kind of going into this uh, whole journey was something that I tried to do a lot of reading on, um, just learning the history about the route more. Um, studying like indigenous land has been something that um, I think I've always wanted to learn more about, but felt intimidated to learn about and intimidated to find the right way to talk about. Um, and it, you know, didn't take too much uh, research to learn, you know, that like this uh, history of the route is very clearly kind of like shoved under the rug in exchange for, um, you know, this kind of glorified image of John Muir, a, you know, great defender of our, of our lands and, uh, you know, I really wanted to kind of draw attention to that that name that um, um, I learned through a, a group in the Sierra called Indigenous Women Hike. Um, Autumn Harry and Jolie Varela are um, the two uh, Indigenous women who who run that um, hiking group, and they did a reclamation hike um, of the Numapoyo uh, several years back, and that's the name that they heard their Paiute elders referring to the trail as uh, mm. over the years and growing up. And so um, they've made a push to kind of put that name back out into, uh, you know, into, uh, into our minds and into yeah. the way we think about it and talk about it. And so uh, I said to someone recently, I'm like, if my just one goal is to like, um, you know, get, get those words in people's heads and maybe allow them to, to know, know those interchangeably of like, oh yeah, the John Muir Trail, Numapoyo. Yeah. Like I've, I've heard of both those things. I know the history, you know, from, from, uh, going back further than, you know, yeah. our, our, uh, you know, famed John Muir. So, yeah. It's so, it's so cool. And it's, again, something that I didn't know anything about until, you know, sort of seeing it on your Instagram and then going on Wikipedia myself. And I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but I love the, I think it 
actually translates to the people's trail, which I think is just yes. like the most beautiful thing ever. You know, this is just like the trail for the people. And uh, it makes me think of all the volcanoes here in the Northwest and how I just wish they would officially change all their names to the, to the native names, you know, Mount Hood is yeah. Y East and Mount mm. St. Helens is Lewitt and uh, Mount Rainier, I think is, Tahoma and it's just like the, the names are so much better when they're in the you know their traditional native names yeah. um so c- congrats to you kudos to you for uh for pushing that uh for the new Mupoyo as well I think it's really cool so before we get into the uh the actual record attempt itself I want to learn a little bit more about what your considerations were in terms of going uh, unsupported versus supported what was your decision making like on that front I think that uh a lot of it largely had to do with kind of this curveball COVID year of, you know, what can I do that's just so far outside of my comfort zone and um, kind of outside the bounds of what I might do in a quote normal year. Um, it felt like a really good year to like take some big risks and, uh, you know, learn more about myself in that um, unsupported context. And I think some of it does go back to, to what I was mentioning about like managing support during a race. Um, that's something I definitely have wanted to get better at over the years. Um, and I think there's always been this, I've definitely had this before at races like Leadville where, you know, I'll come into an aid station and, you know, at the time didn't quite know enough to realize like, you know, I've still got to do the work and the communicating and know my body, like my crew can't do that for me. Um, so to get to know myself in that context and be able to take care of myself, you know, deep off into the mountains is kind of like, a skill that I was hoping to maybe take out of this year and back into races next year, hopefully like CCC or whatever it might be. So, um, that was kind of the connection maybe to some of my, my goals, uh, beyond 2020. But, um, other than that, it also had a lot to do with kind of some longer, uh, mountain outings I had been spending the summer doing and just was really enjoying that style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So maybe, Tell us a little bit about the route for people who are less familiar with it. Could you give us just like a little nutshell encapsulation of the statistics, distance, elevation, anything else you think is relevant about the route itself? Yeah. So um, the actual, the technical trail is uh, 210 miles from the summit of Mount Whitney to Happy Isles in Yosemite Valley. But um, all of the FKT attempts are tracked trailhead to trailhead. So Whitney Portal to Happy Isles or in reverse. Um, the elevation gain, um, south to north is about 40,000, uh, 40, 42, and then going south is about 44, 46, um, thousand. So most of the FKT attempts are done kind of northbound on the route, um, just because it has about 4,000 less feet of climbing. Um, so the totals that way come out to about 223 miles, um, and, uh, yeah, so you actually start by climbing Mount Whitney um, from Whitney Portal. So just a <laughs> casual jaunt up to the highest yeah. point in the lower 48. Yeah. And uh, then just making your way uh, to Yosemite Valley through some of the most beautiful country I've uh, ever experienced. <laughs> it really is just the most breathtaking area. And it's always just 
so yeah, just such a special place to spend time whenever we usually get down there about once a year, spend time mm-hmm. in Mammoth and mess around there in the Sierra. And yeah, it's just such a, such a gem, uh, that we have available yeah. to us. So let's, uh, let's kind of get into the details of the attempt itself. You know, you're, you're at the top of Mount Whitney. Uh, what time did you get started? I guess, uh, yeah. Talk us through maybe like the, the first hundred miles <laughs> of the attempt, <laughs> anything, yeah. uh, like, yeah, maybe what I'm curious is like the practical stuff, you know, like how mm-hmm. did you figure out how you wanted to pace it? How did you strategize your sleeping, things yeah. like that? So maybe let's let's talk about the first part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think like one of the curveballs that's kind of unique to mention uh, from the start is that this is kind of amidst a lot of the um, crazy wildfires that uh, California was plagued with this year. So the nearby Sequoia Complex fire was just raging, um, and you know waking up to start that day was definitely some thick smoke in the air. So, so sorry to interrupt you just for yeah. context. What, what was the date that you started? Just I so started September 1st. Okay. So pick yep. up there. Sorry to interrupt you. Yep. No, it's great. Uh, yeah. So September 1st started. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the kind of question mark that the smoke kind of, uh, was on the whole start and journey really allowed me to kind of stay in the moment because it didn't necessarily feel like the next day or the day after was a given. Like mm-hmm. I was pretty prepared to, you know, like drop into some basin and have there just be like crazy smoke that maybe would just shut the whole thing down. Um, and I was pretty uh, fortunate with how it worked out overall, um, just kind of zooming out to the greater journey in terms of slithering between the elements. Um, I had kind of poor AQI on like the first and last days. Um, so, uh, kind of fortunately after, after day one, I was really in the clear on air quality and really just got everything done in the nick of time. But so kind of back to day one, um, you know, I, uh, my pack was around 22 pounds at the start. So, um, you know, a big piece of this was gear management and, uh, I definitely had, uh, kind of made the gear style choice that this was not going to be an FKT or bust mission. Mm. Um, I went that route kind of in 2016 where it was like, you know, as soon as I ran out of calories or as soon as I slowed down or whatever, like I was done, there was no plan B or C, Mm. but, um, I really wanted to be prepared. I mean, I had even taken the time off work to be prepared for it to take as long as, you know, five or six days. So I wanted to, um, I wanted to kind of cross every excuse off the list so that it was really just, you know, I had the proper gear to be out there. I had the whole path cleared for me. All I had to do was keep moving on it. Um, so yeah, really the kind of rude awakening was the climb up Whitney with that 22 pound pack. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, you got a long way to go. Yeah. It's yeah. A tough, tough start. <laughs> Yeah. Like I think, uh, have you done Whitney before? No, I actually haven't. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Tumangia, Tumangaya is the indigenous name for it, I think. And at the, the trail crest, uh, like I got to like the ridge basically. And I actually just dumped everything out of my pack and did a full like reshuffling. So it was just like not working. I had this, uh, like large carbon bear canister that was actually required on the route. Uh, and so, that was a large part of my gear situation was managing this bottom ridge of the bear canister digging into my back, um, yeah. which I, you know, I, I rented this bear canister actually via 
mail. So it was like shipped to me a few days before I started. And, uh, so that was the one kind of piece of gear that I didn't really get to do like a test run with. Um, but yeah, kind of, uh, aside from those kind of, you know, variables day one of getting used to the full pack, getting used to the smoke. Um, you know, I really quickly realized that I was not going to hit any of my spreadsheet splits, Mm. um, for better or worse, like some would be faster, some would be slower. Mm. And I mean, right out of the gate, like my Whitney split was just off by like a half hour. Um, and so I think I pretty early on, uh, like faced a lot of my, um, you know, big questions of like, I don't know, like what's going to keep me moving here. And, uh, in a lot of ways, like the first, hundred miles were the hardest, um, because I kind of just gained more confidence as I went. Um, it was kind of like, you know, what's the phrase, like kind of building the plane as as we go or whatever it is, (laughs) you know, uh, I think really, as it went, I gained more and more confidence to continue doing it. And, um, yeah, so that first, uh, first hundred miles or so was slower and, uh, just kind of rougher going than I had expected it to be. Mm-hmm. So how did you think about your pacing after that? Did you throw everything out the window and maybe also talk a little bit about what your strategy was with sleep going into it and maybe how that changed mm-hmm. when you were on the trail itself, especially in the first half while we're focusing Definitely. on that. Yeah. So my original um, sleep plan was to do about um, two hours each night. And, um, actually with the smoke being such on day one, um, I bumped my sleep to far earlier because I felt like my body needed recovery sooner. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just really feeling it in the lungs and even in the, my brain, like there was like a, a fog that, you know, kind of comes from low running in that low or high AQI kind of conditions. Um, and so I actually did my first, um, I, I started at, uh, was it seven or eight? I think I started at 8 a.m. I started at 8 a.m. I think I took my first nap at like 9 p.m. that night. So not all that far into it, mm. um, about, you know, 13 hours in or so. Um, and I think that was like a good uh, good kind of reminder that, you know, listening to the body was going to be key for this. And of course, it doesn't mean just like surrendering and, you know, throwing in the towel and doing like a nice long night of sleep or anything. Like I was definitely still pushing back on my body and plenty of uh, regards, but, um, like I think changing, shuffling the timing of that was really helpful. So I did, um, yeah, like my first like little two hour nap, uh, probably about 20 miles before I had even planned to rest. Um, and, um, really kind of that first day or two, um, kind of threw pace out the window and it wasn't until I kind of, uh, was realizing like, oh man, I'm, I'm in it right now. I'm, I'm doing this, that I started to kind of like count back to the record and, um, kind of recalculate the paces of there of, can I pull this off? Um, and so really like, even in that, like, I guess, jumping ahead to like the back half, the sleep, um, arrangement was such that I, that was the first thing to go on my list was yeah, I, yeah. like, I pretty much skipped it entirely. Yeah. On, uh, uh, night four, just in exchange to hopefully get that extra edge towards the record, which spoiler, spoiler alert, I missed the record by about six <laughs> hours, but, um, 
no shame yeah. in that. And we'll, we'll yeah. talk about that here in a little yeah. bit. One thing I'm interested in talking a little bit more about and having watched the video that Adidas put together about your record attempt is the night part of the record <laughs> attempt. And, uh, you know, in the video, I want to encourage everybody to go take a look at it and I'll link to it in the show notes here. But it, you seem to say that the, the night parts or the, the night running was some of your favorite miles of the whole route. Can, can you talk about that a little bit and what your psychology is? Because I, I think, you know, intuitively, it would seem like that would be sort of like a, a scary thing. You're out in the middle of absolutely nowhere without opportunity to bail. You're all alone. Talk about the night and what about it made you, um, yeah, so comfortable. And what did you enjoy about it? You know, it's like, honestly, some of my favorite miles I've ever done. Like even just hearing you like ask that question, it almost makes me emotional because it just feels like, yeah, just like those are some good times. Um, like, just how you described it being so far out there, so removed and, um, so kind of, uh, solo and, um, dependent on myself and the things on my back, um, going into it. Yeah. That was a major fear for me is, uh, this kind of management of sleep, um, and, uh, all the things that come along with night too. Um, not just sleep, but the lower temperatures, um, uh, you know, hallucinations, animals, uh, you know, so many things. And that was actually um, something that kind of that Coop had encouraged me to do ahead of time was kind of make a list of these things that were standing in the way of success for me. Um, and it was this actually kind of hilarious list of fears. It was like fear of a medical emergency, fear of like <laughs> hitting my head on a rock or a mountain lion encounter or getting hypothermic and all of these things. And really, um, once I got out there, uh, the kind of fun surprise that I had with the way my permit timing worked out, my start day was September 1st and a full moon started September 1st. So cool. I lucked out with the full moon for wow. the whole journey, um, which was just wild because many of the stretches I could go uh, sans headlamp, which was wow. pretty special. Uh, that's the way so, to time it for FKTs. That I mean, that's a that's a secret advantage there too. It seems like it was a kind of a happy accident for you, but I'll, oh, put, yeah. I'll put that down on my list in case I ever go for it. Hundred percent, because then um, really, like you know, uh, like I'm sure many ultra runners have experienced this. Of you know, folks going like, "Why would you want to do it at night? You miss all the beauty." But like. I was having this really cool, like full moon moments with these places where they had, you know, sparkling lakes, like glittering, like diamonds, you know, dropping into these, you know, up over forest or pass, you see all the lakes lit up by the moon and, yeah. um, you know, just these really special moments with, uh, no people around. And, um, it was like a really kind of intimate experience with the place. Um, and so, yeah, like um, Forrester Pass is the first pass, like after Whitney that you go over and, uh, you know, like going up, like, like I described, just like seeing all those lakes lit up, you know, I have, have that was kind of the start of night really starting to go well for me is like, oh, it's going to be like this. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was so like you, get a, you, get a view, you get a view from the past, even though it's the middle of the night, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> wow. yeah. And like, I, uh, I think once, once I realized that this fear was going to turn into like such a 
highlight. Um, that's like a really empowering feeling. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it just, I don't know, I think made me feel, uh, I just felt like a presence out there that I'm like trying to like bottle up and remember how I got there. So I can always like try and feel that again in, in outings and goals I try in the future because it was a special thing. That's so cool. Mentioning the word fear, you know, it makes me want to ask, and I hope this isn't like sexist or whatever, but like my, my Mm. wife doesn't love running at night, you know, or very early in the morning when it's still dark. And I always used to kind of like, you know, poke fun at her for it. But she's like, listen, like if you were my size, it would yeah. be totally different. And it was hilarious because one time I actually squatted down to her eye level. And it was the first time I realized like, geez, people approach the world from different, you know, vantage points. And if if this was my vantage point, I could absolutely understand, you know, why she would would feel that way. And I'm yeah. obviously, you know, a much, much larger person. Did you have any like fear for like your own personal safety? And like, if mm-hmm. so, how did you, uh, confront that and how did you, uh, yeah. How did you manage that fear? I definitely, uh, I mean, I totally know what she means. I've said that to Cordis before too, where I'm like, there's a different kind of set of, uh, concerns that like that, I carry around as a woman that, you know, definitely, uh, I feel every bit of that when I'm out there at night. And, um, I think that there is something like, uh, kind of comforting about like the, uh, Numapoyo in particular, because you are so remote, like the people that you are seeing are kind of these very trail generous fellow, fellow trail users. And, um, I do think I was able to have a, a confidence out there that is different than maybe if I was, you know, running on like, you know, my local bike paths in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's definitely the, that, um, that it's, you know, so heavily permitted out there that you're in pretty good hands, but even besides like people out there, you know, like just the, uh, the thought of an animal encounter, the thought of some sort of medical situation, you know, I fortunately got my, um, my kind of in reach with me. And, uh, I, I was definitely comforted by the fact that, like kind of doing the math and thinking, okay, like if I hit, you know, if I need to hit SOS in this thing, or if I need to even message, you know, Mm. Cordis to like come meet me or something like that, doing the math. I'm like, okay, if he's a mammoth, say he's an hour drive from a trailhead, a two hour run in over some pass, like the thought of kind of breaking that down, um, was always really helpful to me in the back of my head. Um, and so Yeah, I definitely, those things were all in my head, but I will say, I think something happened with my brain out there where I became less and less, uh, fearful as I kind of, as I went and, uh, actually like looking back, there's definitely some situations where I think I should have had more fear, but for whatever reason, kind of with my brain, I feel like something was kind of turned off and, uh, that's, uh, yeah, like I, my tracker was had totally died for the last 30 hours or so. And so mm-hmm. um, like I uh, was missing that very yeah. important safety piece. And I probably should have had a little bit more fear about that than I did. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for answering that. I think that's really empowering to to women. And I mean, I'm speaking, you know, for myself as well. I think there would be a certain level of anxiety, you know, being out there on my own too, as somebody who's 
much bigger than you probably and much yeah. bigger than yeah. most people. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, being prepared with an inreach and, uh, and yeah, I guess sort of like, turning that fear on its head and actually looking for the enjoyment in those, those night hours, as it sounds like you did is really cool. So let's pick up at the point you were talking about where, you know, you started to recognize that you were within striking distance of the record again. And let's, uh, let's talk about kind of like the second half, any highlights mm -hmm. or lowlights or other things that you think are relevant to share. Yeah, definitely. Um, so really, I think, um, you know, one of the pieces that you kind of, like anyone trying something like this, you know, there's really like this, I mean, really in any ultra too, there's this, this like ugly middle section where <laughs> you're really kind of face to face <laughs> with what you're doing. And, um, you're very far from that glorious moment or the, you know, the hug with your loved one at the finish line, or, you know, it's not pretty like you're, you know, like walking a downhill section and you're just yeah. kind of everybody, <laughs> everybody who's listening to this, I'm sure is nodding their head right now. It's like, you're, you're so far from the start, but you're still so far from the end. So you have to yeah. figure out how to keep moving. Sorry. Keep going. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, I mean, I definitely, uh, had to kind of like really shift my scale in terms of what I was willing to tolerate. Like, I feel like I remember many sections where it would be like, you know, six plus hours of like a long low. Um, but, you know, like many, like I mean, many of the same people nodding their heads to that uh, kind of lows will also kind of realize that, you know, feeling of like the longer these things go, the more opportunity there is to come back up and you start to get into this nice kind of cycle of highs and lows and highs and lows. And, um, I haven't quite experienced that before, like in hundreds that I've done. And I think this was, you know, long enough that you really start to, you know, have that sense of a storyline of ups and downs over the course of days that are unfolding. And, um, that was a really cool thing to actually kind of come face to face with and, um, a big takeaway for me for sure. Um, but yeah, like really, um, once I um, had reached kind of probably like a silver pass, which is like just before um, like the section leading up to like Devil's Post Pile Mammoth area mm -hmm. um, was when I was kind of starting to do some of the math. I mean, I, the, I was doing the math in the back of my head for most of it, but um, where yeah, what else is there to do? Yeah. You got to yeah. just do math. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was where I was kind of thinking, all right, like if I can hit all of my a splits here from now to the finish, I think every time it would add up to be like exactly the record. So it was like, oh my gosh, it's like adding up to four days, five hours. Like if I can just get all these a splits. Um, yeah. and, uh, so I opted to skip sleep on night four. Actually, I did, um, I think I did 20, 24 minutes of sleep broken up into three naps. Like by the end, it was like these obscure numbers where I'd be like, I, I'm going to do a four minute nap. It's like totally rational in my brain. Like why it's not five or three or six uh, or an hour. Um, but yeah, like I did 24 minutes of sleep that night and uh a lot of weird, a lot of weird stuff happened that, that last night. Um, like I, uh, encountered a wildfire and 
I had what I believe to be a three hour, uh, face off with a UFO and, uh, things got weird. (laughs) And I think, um, I didn't quite realize how, like, like I mentioned that kind of, you know, fear had diminished the whole time for me. Like, I think by the time I got to night four, it made total sense to me that I should be able to hit those splits and I should just be able to skip sleep and kind of power through all these variables. But my brain definitely got the best of me. And uh, like, you know, the, the hallucinations and such were just so uh, vivid and distracting that um, I didn't quite anticipate just how much I would unravel, you know, despite the gain of that comes from the the time, not, um, not sleeping. Uh, I didn't realize how many other pieces would still slow me down and get to me. Mm-hmm. Um, were there any moments where you, contemplated bailing was there any like major low point to the point where you question whether you could make it all the way to Yosemite honestly um I think the the closest low would have actually been really early at um Pincho Pass um like at around 60 60 or 70 miles in um but there was never really uh it never really materialized to like an actual thought of bailing but just kind of more that moment of coming face to face with like, um, you know, am I going to still stick with this even if I don't get the record? And um, that's, uh, I'm really glad that I had answered that question ahead of time that I was going to keep going regardless because uh, boy, it doesn't become uh, easier to make that call once you're, once you're out there. So having committed to that already. And just like I mentioned, like having that path cleared, um, was like, okay, if I really needed to, I can pull over right now and get a full night's sleep, make some ramen and uh, like just kind of march it out. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that was, that was really helpful to have that kind of decided for me ahead of time. You know, I think FKTs are so kind of binary in nature, like either got it or you didn't. And, uh, but I think like, we've all learned it a lot this year with so many, you know, great FKT stories and attempt stories and DNF stories and all things in between. It's like, mm-hmm. there's, uh, so, so much, you know, uh, richness that can happen, uh, in pursuit yeah. of plans B, C, and D. So it's such a great lesson. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I mean, it's obviously totally applicable to racing as well. And people ask me all the time, you know, I'm about to do my first hundred miler sort of like, what advice do you have? And my advice is always just give yourself no excuse to not make it to the finish line. You know, like when I remember when I did Leadville for the first time, my first hundred miler, I was a hundred percent sure I was making it to the finish line. You know, Mm -hmm. there was nothing that was going to stop me from doing it. And when that variable is taken off the table, like you said, Mm -hmm. it then opens up the potential to actually have like a a good performance where Mm -hmm. if, if everything is riding on your a goal, and you don't get it, then the whole thing is, you know, a failure, you know, at least in your own mind. And, uh, and that will obviously make it much more difficult to enjoy the experience or to make it to the finish line, um, in general. So that's a, that's a really good lesson. So you mentioned the the fires. So let's talk about the, Mm -hmm. um, the dramatic finish to your, uh, your FKT (laughs) attempt, um, in, in the film again, that I'll link to, there's a cool part where 
Cordis, your husband, is talking to the yeah. camera and he says something to the effect of it's it's raining ash right now and he's standing in Yosemite Valley at the finish line waiting for you to get there. What the hell was that like? I mean, it seemed like it was apocalyptic uh, wildfire situation that you had to navigate at the very end. Can you talk about yeah. that? Honestly, it seems like, um, you know, when you're watching like some like crazy action movie and it's like the scenes keep getting like crazier and crazier until it's like the final scene where like the entire city's exploding and things are like, you know, there's glass everywhere and monsters or whatever it is. And it's like, like as the viewer of this movie, you're like, wow, how did we get here? Like this, some, the volume got really loud. <laughs> this is a weird, this is crazy. It kind of was this uh, dramatic like action movie finish to the whole thing, um, which <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, you know, like uh, coming through Tuolumne Meadows, like air is like pretty clear. And um, pretty much as soon as I kind of made the turn at like Sunrise Lakes, I think it was like really starting to get closer to like familiar with those trails, like the, the turnoffs for like Clouds Rest and Half Dome, like that kind of true drop into Yosemite Valley. Um, the sky was truly like this dark kind of uh, like orange, burnt orange color that, you know, we were seeing so much of at the end of the summer and this fall in fires, you know, especially like all those photos from, you know, Oregon and from San Francisco and really had that um, apocalyptic orange color. But then um, what was really bizarre was that actually like at the horizon, there was still normal light coming in. So there was this band of like white. So all these trees were just like front lit and normal light, but orange everywhere else, very bizarre. And uh, and then actually running through an existing burn scar from that fire a couple of years ago in Yosemite. just super, uh, super apocalyptic. And, you know, for, for anyone that's run in those trails, uh, above Yosemite Valley, there's, uh, you know, obviously tons of people normally there. Um, so like little Yosemite Valley is like such a popular, like night one backpacking destination for people and coming through these areas, they were absolutely empty. So I actually had this fear, oh my gosh, did, did like, um, rangers maybe come through and clear the area and, um, fortunately ran into like one or two other parties and actually with you know my brain was just so deranged at this point I actually kind of needed a verbal process with them like hey I'm am I safe running in this track like I needed a second opinion um because <laughs> yeah. it really was um yeah. yeah like snowing ash I'm covered in ash I'm like you know um it if I was not so close to to finishing this it would have for sure been a Bam. you know yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but like, of course it's like at, you know, mile 210 or whatever, I'm definitely gonna just march through. Um, and, uh, yeah, I really tried to just run as hard as I could to the finish. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to see a place like Yosemite that I love so much look like that. Um, especially, you know, like dreaming of this for many years, it's like Yosemite is just this, you know, glorious place, waterfalls everywhere, you know, like, uh, seeing it look like that is a sad, sad for sure. And, uh, you know, it was definitely, uh, an eerie way to finish, but like, I'm, I'm so grateful that I was able to get this in and like slither between the elements. Uh, I feel like, um, yeah, just, I straight up just locked out. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's obviously a very scary reality that we deal with in the West now. And, uh, yeah, it's it's tough to see it getting better anytime soon, but 
you know, like you said, I guess the, the bright side is you got an action movie finished to what was an epic <laughs> four and a half days in the uh, Sierra backcountry. So yeah. you finished in four hours or sorry, four days, 11 hours. You missed yeah. the, the FKT uh, by a few hours. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about that. How did you process that afterwards or even on the trail when you recognized that the FKT was slipping away after days of pursuing it? How did that impact mm-hmm. your feelings about your experience? Was there disappointment? Do you feel like you want to go back and give it another shot? Uh, what do you think about kind of falling ever so short on what was the ultimate goal? Yeah, you know, I think I honestly, uh, I felt so like committed to this, the whole unsupported style and finish like in a, in a somewhat speedy nature that like it, I don't know, there wasn't like this big morning loss of the FKT like I've, I, you know, I, I, I'm a really emotional racer and, um, competitor and like, I get really attached to my goals and I really was almost surprised that I wasn't more emotional about that missed FKT, but I think it still just felt like such a huge accomplishment for me personally that like, um, that was like the, the stoke that came from that was like, I don't know, uh, even yeah, I don't know. I, I was so like pleasantly distracted by this personal accomplishment, I guess uh-huh. is what I'm trying to say. But, you know, of course there's definitely now, you know, the, like my brain kicking in the days and weeks following of, you know, how I would lighten my pack for next time and where I would, you know, certain splits I would want to hit. And, um, I definitely have a strong desire to, to go back and, um, and really give it a good, uh, good another go. I think that, you know, like there's a, I don't know, there's like a lot of corners you kind of need to cut in an FKT mission. And like, I didn't cut a lot of those corners. Uh, I guess cut corners is maybe the wrong phrase, but just like, you know, just trimming the pack weight down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like taking risks, uh, and you know, like I mentioned, like, because I, really wanted to keep it open for this unsupported finish. Like, um, I think there's plenty of ways I could, uh, you know, trim things for next time. And, yeah. you know, it's actually interesting that Amber, the current record holder, I think, um, she went, her first unsupported go was like five and a half days. And then she came back the next year and took like, you know, a day, a day and a half off. Wow. Yeah. Day off. So I do think, and I think there actually is a history of that with um, some of the men's records as well of just, um, I think it was Aurelian Sanchez who did like, it, I actually, I don't, I'll get it wrong, but it was something like he did like four or five attempts or something before, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a, yeah, there's definitely yeah. A, a, a amount of dialing to this specific route. Yeah. I mean, even the best, it takes a couple of attempts. Jim Walmsley took him yeah. three times to, to win Western right. States. Now he's got that figured out. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's so cool. And I think, you know, the psychology of it is important. And I think your whole approach is something that we can all learn from. And, you know, you fall short of one goal, but you have something so amazing to be proud of and something that you'll always like be able to hold on to for the rest of your life. And something that you're the only person who who is ever going to be able to understand, you know, because you you didn't share it with anybody but yourself. And it's a amazing, powerful thing. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about your equipment a little bit and, you know, Mm -hmm. your pack, you did a really cool write up, which uh, I'll also link to about that goes deep dive into your equipment, but maybe talk a little bit about 
the, the less intuitive things that maybe you found to be really crucial. And if there's anything else that you think you could have done better on the equipment and gear side, those are two mm-hmm. things I'm, I'm interested to learn about. Yeah, absolutely. I am. I think like one of the, uh, like kind of luxury items that I lean towards, um, kind of actually in the final days before was choosing to bring things like a charger for my phone. And, um, that was mainly so that I could listen to music at night, which was super helpful. Um, and, uh, yeah, like that was, a like the luxury of weight. I mean, I know it sounds like wild, but just towards the end, just counting, uh, counting the grams so precisely that it felt very luxurious to say, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm going to bring a charger and headphones, but, um, yeah, like kind of an electronics department, that was one thing. Um, but, um, wait, sorry, what was the first part of your question? It was like, anything that like was that maybe you didn't think you were going to need, but you're really happy you brought anything like I'm just curious about all this because you have to think about all these things in such granular detail, you know, is it like, do you bring an extra pair of shoelaces in case like that fails? And also, I mean, maybe it's easier to answer. Like, was there anything that you wish you hadn't brought that was just dead weight Mm. the whole time? And how did you approach even like your clothing? Did you just bring like one shirt, one shorts, one jacket sort of thing? Yeah. Anything there? Totally. Um, I think like the, one of the areas where I spent the most energy, um, trying to dial in ahead of time was my sleep setup. Um, so like it was this balance between, um, like I was very scared of getting like irreversibly cold at night. Um, and so I kind of, um, I kind of made like, and maybe you saw it in the, the blog post you were mentioning too, but like I made these kind of like aesthetic choices of how my systems were going to go. And, um, this was something actually talking with uh, Joe Grant about this. Um, he recommended I do. He's like, choose your kind of aesthetic and stick with it. So for me, my sleep aesthetic was going to be, um, this is the setup. It's going to be lightweight and minimal. If you're cold, you keep going. If you can't sleep, you keep going. If you're uncomfortable, you keep going. Um, and that helped me make a lot of choices. So mm-hmm. that meant I was not going to do a lightweight sleeping bag um, or anything super comfortable for that matter. It was a kind of, um, thicker emergency bivy, a chopped and a chopped down pad. And, um, so I went like pretty light in the sleep department, but then chose to have like, um, like a 700 fill down on my body, um, that actually could work as a moving layer. So I kind of opted to go heavier on moving layers and lighter on sleep layers. So that was, that was the decision where I, I spent a lot of time and energy, um, ahead of time. Um, the, I think like the, the piece that I went a little heavy on was calories actually. Um, I probably finished with half a bear can of food still left. Wow. Um, That's a lot of weight probably, huh? It was, yeah, it was quite a bit. Um, and that was, uh, you know, again, kind of like me wanting to be prepared for like, if I'm out here for a long, uh, long time. Right, right, right. Um, and I, uh, I think it equated to being about, uh, I'm going to forget the number. I maybe mentioned it in that blog post, but I feel like it was close to like 300 calories an hour for like the whole time or something like that. And I wasn't yeah. putting that much down. I was probably closer <laughs> to like, I was probably closer to like 150 an hour, um, yeah. even a hundred an hour. And some, so, so instances. you maybe carried twice the food that you actually needed to. Yeah. yeah probably. But as you mentioned, right. Like, maybe you, you cut that down 
if you're going like all or nothing FKT style, yeah. but since, since you did have, you know, the contingencies B, C, D, um, you know, you, the, yeah, kudos to you. I think, you know, getting it done and carrying a little extra weight is a, a prouder uh, accomplishment than going super fast for half of it and bailing. So yeah, thanks. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll yeah. Uh, point everybody to, uh, to that blog post as well, because I think I learned, I learned a lot from it and I've never done anything like multi-day, but, uh, I think the more prepared we are, the more thought we put into it, the easier it, it probably goes. And then, you know, yeah. you learn, learn from the first attempt and iterate, and I'm sure you'd probably do it differently next time. So. Oh, totally. I'm curious, um, you know, before we let you go, I appreciate you spending so much time and talking yeah. us through all this. And, um, you know, you've also done a lot of stuff, you know, in racing, you had a great end to last year at CCC mm-hmm. and then North face 50. And then you won the, the Moab, uh, red hot 55 K this year, uh, before your, your JMT attempt, what, uh, what inspires you about the future? Any other, um, races or FKTs or personal projects that, uh, you'd like to put on your bucket list or, you know, assuming we get back to normal next year, what do you hope it looks like? Totally. Um, I, my like one, uh, really goal for 2021 is if, if UTMB is happening, I will, I'll take the slow boat to get there. I'll (laughs) quarantine in a half dozen countries along the way. Um, I'm really motivated to, um, to get back to CCC. Um, that's like definitely, definitely on my list, but you know, it still coexists with things like going back for uh, Numapoyo again. And I know that seems, it's like a, it's like a quite the spectrum, but I keep just reaching back for the things that motivate me. And Mm -hmm. even if they're not necessarily like this super logical path, you know, um, I think letting the motivation be the leading piece is, uh, has been really important to me finding, uh, finding some success with things. And, uh, you know, I think for a while in the sport, I felt the need to have a certain path that looked a certain way or a logical build. And, uh, I think once I let go of that and kind of started embracing a little bit more of what my personal path was going to look like, just based on what inspired me, that, uh, that was really freeing. So spoken like a true Jason Coop disciple. (laughs) (laughs) Find find what actually motivates you. Then we start training. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It's a great thing that he's, uh, he's instilled in me as well. Well, Abby, it's great to chat with you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story from the new Mupoyo. It's an amazing accomplishment and it was awesome to follow along. I encourage everybody to read the blog that you put together from it, watch the video and I'll link to all that here. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of 2020 and hopefully we'll, we'll catch you sometime on the trail next year. Thanks Dylan. This is a blast. Thanks so much to Abby. I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. Check out the show notes there. You can find a link to Abby's Instagram handle. If you're not following her already, I'd recommend you do. She's a super fun follow on that platform. I also link to that Adidas video that I mentioned at the front end and the website that she shares with her husband, Cordis, who's also a badass 
mountain athlete himself. So check out those links. And if you have time, of course, I would be super appreciative if you don't mind dropping us a rating or review on the podcast platform of your choice. Always very much appreciate hearing from you guys there. And it helps the show quite a bit. So thanks again for being here. Always, always a pleasure to have you here. We'll talk to you again soon. Love you. Bye.